have your seat. We'll get started. You can open up to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. As you're coming back to your seat, I had uh, two announcements that I missed today. Um, wanted to draw these to your attention. One is that our small groups, uh, we have signups for small groups happening right now. Uh, small groups will launch after Labor Day. And we have 101 adults signed up for small groups this fall. Super exciting. Um, we're trying to organize that, get everyone into groups. I think about, we have like eight community groups and three Bible studies. So if you're interested in getting plugged into a group and you haven't done so yet, you can see information at the back to get plugged into a group. Um, the second thing is, with uh, our kind of first impression team, uh, with greeters, uh, we need to, to recruit more for the, the greeting team. So if you're, maybe if you're new to Desert City and you're trying to figure out how to get plugged in, that's a great place to start is just to help with greeters. So Karen Height is leading our greeters team. She's around here somewhere. Do you want to stand up, Karen? This is Karen. So if you're interested in greeting, you can see Karen, and, uh, and she'll get you connected. So Ephesians chapter 2. In April of 1994, the president of Rwanda was assassinated. And this sparked a civil war between the Hutus and the Tutsis, two tribes that were in Rwanda. The war was absolutely devastating, and after about three months, a country of nine million people had about 800,000 dead. Really wild, wild three months. Gary Haugen, who's now the president of the International Justice Mission, at the time was working for the UN, was sent onto the scene uh, to inspect what had happened, trying to assess the damage. Gary Haugen talks about getting there and, and seeing just this war-torn country, uh, villages, wiped out, destroyed, women and children losing their lives. He's absolutely devastated. One of the first things that he talked about is when he was talking with the people who were surviving, asking what they needed help with. What he found is that they weren't asking for food or water or medicine. They weren't asking for better education. The thing that they were asking for was that the, that the, the merciless violence would stop, that someone would just stop the violence. Just the absolutely devastating, oppressive violence that was happening. Someone stop it. The second thing that kind of came to Gary's mind was the question. In the midst of all of this devastation and murder, where are God's people? Where are God's people in this community, in this country? And the interesting thing is, is that Rwanda had been celebrated by missionaries for years. This trophy country where maybe some 90% of the people in the country were supposed to be Christian. So what happened? How does a, a country with 90% professing to say that, that Jesus is their savior turn to a civil war where they absolutely devastate their neighbors, people that they were living right next to? And then you look kind of at some of the, the roots of tribalism that were found in Rwanda, and you see that these roots go back years, these two tribes that were living in tension with each other. They couldn't stand each other. Yet it had never gotten to this point of violence. In the 1970s and 80s, this tension had started to build even more. And it was mounting and it was mounting. And finally, this one event, the assassination of the president, set it off. And the whole place goes crazy. Kaujin was saying 90% of the people were supposed to be Christian. And yet there was something here where their own neighbors, they were willing to kill them because of tribalism. Like, tribalism is something that is primal for us as humans. Um, sometimes we, we understand it, even in a, a somewhat peaceful place like our, our culture. Um, I'm a Phoenix Suns fan. I'm a diehard Phoenix Suns fan. I naturally cannot stand 
the Los Angeles Lakers. If you're a Lakers fan, I'm sorry. I'm glad you're here. We're praying for you. <laughs> Immediately, when I think of Lakers fans, I think of, like, you know, they're not diehard fans like us Suns fans. We have suffered, right? We're still fans even though we lose all the time. Uh, the Lakers have been spoiled, so their fans aren't real. Like, I, in my mind, I just have, like, all of these stereotypes about who the Lakers fans, what Lakers fans are like. Like, these L.A. people, I can't stand them. There's this tribalism that, that, stinks in, that sinks in. Uh, but it's true even more than that. I mean, we, we, live, we live in a culture divided by tribalism with, with all sorts of ways that we have these kind of social barriers that, that separate us from other people, and we just always kind of assume the worst of other people. And a lot of times it's kind of not that big of a deal, but then at other times it's, it's actually kind of dangerous in a society when people think uh, so poorly of their neighbors. And what I want to talk about today is when the Apostle Paul is writing to Ephesians, he starts to take on this uh, very radical message of what the cross does in the midst of very tribalistic societies. And so I want to read a passage in Ephesians 2, and going to go through 11 through uh, verse 22, and it's kind of broken into three sections, and just look at these words. It says, therefore, Ephesians 2, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But, there's another one of those big buts in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we, have, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently, you are no longer fo foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of this household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So there's a lot to unpack here. I love this idea of that we're being built as a dwelling place for God's spirit. This is what the church is. We don't need a building. We want a building. We're not quite there yet. We can move back and forth with schools, but it's the group of people that gathered or this spirit of God dwells among us. But then he has this line in verse 14. He says that he himself is our peace. He is our peace. Last week we talked about this idea of grace that's found in Ephesians. This week I want to talk about this idea of he himself is our peace. Peace is taking this language from the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9, kind of like the Christmas passage where it talks about wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Prince of peace is one of the titles that's been given to the Messiah. For the Hebrews, it's this word shalom. Uh, some of us know what shalom means. It doesn't mean the absence of conflict, but it means this idea of wholeness. It means uh, there, there's this harmony in relationships when we have shalom. In the Garden of Eden, there was shalom with God. 
Uh, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's this idea of this harmony that we have in relationships. In the Greek, it's this word irene, irene. I hope I'm mispronouncing that correctly. Um, it means one or a quietness, a peace. Together, he himself is our peace. It says, he who has made, verse 14, the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So here's what kind of a big idea in Ephesians is, is this God who is our peace is bringing about this reconciliation in our relationship with him. We're separated from God as humans, and yet God is making a way for us to be reconciled through the blood of Christ. So there's this reconciliation, there's now peace between us and God. There's harmony in that relationship. But then Paul also says it doesn't just stop there. There's this other reconciliation that happens between us and our fellow man. There's peace that comes into our relationships with others. It's not just that we are at peace with God, but that has ramifications for now, how we live in this life with the people who are around us. There's this harmony that takes place. Ephesians has this unique contribution with all of its theological concepts, but this idea of double reconciliation. We're reconciled to God, and we're reconciled to our fellow man. There's these, uh, that, that means that the, the, the cross, the cross which reconciles us to God, also is this powerful force in this world that takes all of the things that I have done to other people, all the things that other people have done to me, other things that other groups of people have done to me, and it absorbs the punishment and the consequences of all of that sin so that there can be harmony. And I think what's happening in, even in, in Rwanda is this idea that even when we, we lead people to Christ, when people become Christians, there's something all of a sudden radical that changes in how they relate to their neighbors and those around them. There's a living out of this idea that we have been forgiven and now we can forgive others. We have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to other people. It's this idea of double reconciliation. Ralph Martin says, The message of reconciliation is one of God's surest words to our troubled society and fractured world. One of the surest words to our troubled society and fractured world. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What is this barrier? Uh, what does it mean? Is it, what, what is this thing that divides us? Is it like Winston Churchill's speech about the Iron Curtain in World War II in Europe that, that happens after World War II, where there's this, societies are now separated by this. Uh, the barrier, if we look at the image of this that Paul is using, has to do with the temple in Jerusalem. There were these barriers in the, in, in the temple, this place of worship where people would go. There was this courtyard where if you weren't Jewish, you could come to the temple and worship and pray, but there was this barrier where you couldn't go in further than the courtyard. It was the place where the Gentiles would worship. There was another place where the women would be separated and that they would go to worship, but they couldn't come all the way into the temple uh, to worship. Uh, I had experienced this one time. Back when I was uh, in seminary, we had, to, we had to do these kind of experiences where we go to like different places of worship we go visit different religions to see how they did it. And I went to this mosque up in Scottsdale. Never been to a mosque before. And I remember going in and, and uh, like I, I, I walk in and it's all men. There's, there's no women in the room at all. We take our shoes off. We go in. And I'm just trying to experience this and kind of learn about their culture. Um, and as we go through this service, uh, it felt very kind of like, you know, there's no electricity in the room. It's just a very different experience. At the end of the service, all of a sudden I hear this crowd erupt behind me, 
And I look up on the balcony, and I hear all these women and children. And I, I realize that it's all men down on the floor, but all the women and children are up in the balcony. They're not allowed to come down onto the floor. And they've been silent this whole time, which is, like, fascinating. That's really, I want to, like, how did you get, keep the children silent? That's amazing. Um, but but they're, they're, the way that they're structured for their worship is there's this barrier where the, the women and children do not come down. And we look at the old, the old temple in Jerusalem. There were these barriers where not everyone could come into, like, the, the, not everyone could get, get access to God. And this barrier has been destroyed in Christ. These things that, that separate people, all of a sudden, if you're, if you're Jewish or if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter. We have access to God. This barrier has been, has been broken uh, down. It says, He who has made the two groups one has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And we know this is a big deal, especially for Paul as he writes to the Ephesians, that he's trying to tell them there's this reconciliation that takes place with us, but also our fellow man, even if they're very different than us. This story in Acts chapter 20, 21, which is fascinating to me. In verse 27, they're in Jerusalem, and it says, When the seven days were nearly over, some of the Jews in the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously, previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops, and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some of the officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd, and when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Remember, Paul, Paul was the one that started the, the riot in Ephesus. One of my favorite British theologians always talks about, like, wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. I don't know what that says about me, but Paul's constantly starting these, these riots. And why are they rioting here? Because he's brought a Greek. He's brought not only a Greek and Ephesian into this place of worship. Who is Paul writing this letter to? The Ephesians. What is Paul trying to say is that this message of Jesus is for all people. This wall of hostility has been broken down. This barrier has been broken down. There's reconciliation between us and God, but that also affects the relationships we have with people around us. This wall of hostility, this barrier has been broken. Ephesians 2 goes on to say, By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Paul's writing to these people in Ephesians, and he's saying that in Christ there's this new humanity. All of these ways that we are divided there's a beautiful to the diversity of humanity, but those aren't things that divide us. Those aren't things that would keep us from being in relationship with each other. There's this reconciliation that takes place. Those who are different from us, being reconciled to them. And I think, well, what are we talking about here? Is this like a radical language? What does this have to do with me and my neighbor? I live, you know, with Laker fans and can survive with them all the time. What's really interesting, uh, there's a man in our church named Jared Richards. I don't know if you've met him, his wife Lexi, uh, and, and him have been coming since like last December. 
you probably haven't met him because uh, he works military intelligence. And he's been deployed since January. He doesn't get back till next December. And uh, he does military intelligence with the Army, and he's deployed to Guantanamo Bay. And I'm kind of like a, a military history nerd. And so when I first met him, I'm like, I have so many questions. I just want to process with you. And, uh, and then he left. But he was back this summer. And I had the opportunity to just hang out with him and get coffee with him. He was here for a week. And I had so many questions, right? And, uh, and I remember just talking through him and talking with him, talking about like all of, you know, like what, what really happened in this situation. You'd be like, oh, well, that kind of happened that way. No, that didn't really happen like this. And kind of go through all this different, different stuff that he's dealing with. Um, He's in Guantanamo Bay, and you have the 9-11-5 there that he, that he sees every now and then that are, are stationed there. So, like, kind of a high-profile security guy. And I started talking to him about, you know, how he and his wife are doing and then how we as a church can support him and pray for him. I'm like, how can we pray for you as you go back and you're on this mission? And what was interesting was that he said he didn't ask for prayer for himself. What, what Jared Richards asked for, he said, if you could pray for anything... So what I'd like you to do is to pray for, pray for our country, because it is toxic right now. He said, it's so hard for me to be here, away from my bride for a year, working and defending our country, and knowing that all the stuff that's happening back home, like trying to protect us from that outside, and yet there's this destruction coming from within. Like we're Americans, and we can't be civil with each other. He said, if you could pray for anything, pray for that. I thought that was fascinating. Of all the things that I could pray for, he asked that we would pray for each other. Live in this culture with this heightened tension, this, this toxic uh, relationships that are taking place between us and those who are different from ourselves in this country. And we think about this idea of civility, how we live with those who disagree with us. How do us as the church do that? What is our calling as followers of Jesus in a culture that just seems more and more divided? In a culture that just seems like everything is so toxic, everything is blown out of proportion? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in a society that is building and building and building tension? And I'm not just talking about Lakers fans as the sun season starts. But what a prayer to come from, from Jared to say, pray for us as a society. It's so toxic right now. I started thinking about this idea of Paul talking about the barrier that's been broken. Here in Christ, there's reconciliation with us and our fellow man. I want Desert City to be a place where we are civil. I want Desert City to be a place that is a shock absorber in this culture, that we can disagree with people and sit across from them in a room and have conversations about our convictions and do it in a way that is loving, and do it in a way that points people back to the cross, which takes all of the ways that we are separated as a culture and says, there's one thing that unites us. And this is what we do when we take communion. We're reminded that all of us are broken. All of us are sinful. All of us are selfish. And yet there's someone who has made a way for all of us to experience life that is eternal. I want Desert City to be a place where people know that. The peace of God, the grace of God, the love of God plays out in how we relate to people who we disagree with. 
setting aside the flesh, the law, with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself a new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So here's the message of the cross. Jesus looks at humanity and its brokenness. And while we're still in sin, says, I love you enough that I'm going to do this so that you may have life. And he lays down his life to reconcile that brokenness. We're the body of Christ. We do the same. As I mentioned, I'm a big uh, military history fan, and I listen to podcasts on World War II. Marcy loves it. Um, But I I started listening. My favorite podcaster, for those of you who nerd for this kind of stuff, his name is Dan Carlin, and he has this podcast called Hardcore History. And he just did this podcast on, uh, on Japan in World War II. Super fascinating. And he opens up this podcast by telling the story of the last Japanese soldier who surrendered in World War II. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name uh, again because I don't speak Japanese. M- many of you may know this. I think there was a Gilligan's Island episode about it. But Hiro Onodo, Hiro Onodo was living in the jungles in an island in the Philippines. And he finally surrendered in the early 1970s, 29 years after the Japan surrendered. It was ingrained in him that he would never surrender. And so as he went out into the jungle and decided to keep fighting, people tried to get a hold of him and say, the war's over. He thought it was all propaganda. He wasn't going to give up. He wasn't going to surrender. That wasn't the Japanese way. And he thought, if the war's over, that means all the Japanese are dead, because we would never surrender. So for 29 years, he lives in the jungle and keeps fighting. And finally, they find out that he has an officer that's alive that had commanded him to go on this mission. And he's living in Japan, and he's like a book, he owns like a bookstore. And they get a hold of him, and they bring the officer in. And finally, Hiro comes, and he surrenders with his officer there present. And goes back into Japan. They have this parade for him. I mean, this was a very honorable sacrifice. And, and granted, it was 30 years too late. And they were going to still celebrate him for his service to his country. But one thing Hero said is, it wasn't something I felt like I should be celebrated. As I finally realized what happened, he's like, I was completely ashamed. He's like, 29 years of my life, still fighting for something that has been over. A victory is won, and I'm out here still fighting. He said, it was, it was very shameful for me to go back to my homeland. Can you imagine? I, don't, I can't imagine what that would be like. But as I heard that story, I started thinking, that when it comes to us and our relationship with our people around us, when we choose things like racism, when we choose things like elitism, sexism, things that we continue to, to separate ourselves from other people thinking that we're better than them, when Christ has destroyed the barrier wall with the cross, I feel like we're like hero. The war's been over and yet we won't surrender. For the Japanese people, they had great pride, but there was also this hatred of others that was ingrained in them that allowed them to go out and to fight this way. I think the same thing happens with us spiritually. We live in this culture where everyone around us, all the humans around us are made in the image of God. The cross was for them too. The cross brings about eternal life for those people. God loves them so much he would die for them. What is our response as a church? 
I think there's times where we have to come and just surrender some of our own hatred, our own elitism, the ways that we think we're better than others, and be reminded that Christ won something on the cross. That barrier was destroyed. And he calls us to live in harmony with others. Doesn't mean we always agree. Doesn't mean that it's not okay when there's sometimes we don't agree. But we seek common ground. A couple of things to, uh, I think that would help us practically. Um, when it comes to this idea of, of seeing other people the way Christ sees them, is one is to remove tripwires that set you off. If we want to be a people who are the body of Christ here, what are some of the tripwires that we just, once we know that happens, we can't come back, we lose civility. We cannot have conversations with our neighbors because we just know this sets us off. What are those tripwires? One, uh, one of my buddies who goes to this church said, I finally had to delete Facebook. I'm like, I get it. Like, what good comes from those arguments on Facebook? Does it actually hurt the message that we're trying to communicate because we just end up fighting back and forth. We're not having one-to-one conversations where there's nonverbal cues, where there's ways to just sit down with someone. What are the tripwires? The second thing, become a shock absorber in your community. What does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus, not here on Sunday morning, but in your community at your work? Who are the people that you absolutely cannot stand at work? They're probably wearing Laker jerseys, right? <laughs> but how do you become a shock absorber? Instead of... Uh, Instead of making the situations worse, stepping in and absorbing the shock so that we can live in civility. And the final is to seek common ground with others, something that's hard to do. Now, I'm not saying to ever give up your own convictions. I'm not saying to ever not fight for things that you think are worth it. But how do we seek common ground to bring about civility in our relationships? Christ, who is our peace, destroys the barrier wall. There's this new humanity as followers of Jesus all the ways that the world divides us. In Christ, we have this unity. I want to end today with communion, something that we do every week. Communion represents this double reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God, so we're reconciled with each other. We celebrate that with communion. Communion, we take this piece of bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken open for us on the cross. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross that washes away our sin and brokenness. It is here that we find this reconciliation with God, this reminder of the sacred act of the cross. We remember, but then we also proclaim it as the body of Christ in this culture. And I want to end with this prayer of St. Francis, and then we'll move to communion. If Tim wants to come back up. But this is an old ancient prayer. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born into eternal life. Amen. I'm going to pray and when you're ready you can feel free to move to communion. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us. Lord, as we look at this passage in Ephesians, Paul reminds us that you are our peace. In the midst of a a culture and a society that is destructive, divisive, toxic in many ways, 
We ask for your peace. Lord, I pray that your church here in this community, here in this country, would be a witness of this peace. That we'd step into situations that seem hostile. We'd step into situations that are hot with wisdom, with understanding, with humility. That others may know your love because of it. But we've seen how you have sacrificed so much to give others life. In the midst of the darkness of human, the human condition, you reach out and love us. Lord, maybe we be a place that does that as well. Maybe we be willing to meet with those who are different. That we'd have the courage Lord, that you would imprint on our heart today those that we need to seek out for reconciliation, those that we've been avoiding, those that we think poorly of. That we'd find reconciliation. Lord, Lord, we thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your grace and we thank you for your peace. Lord, we ask your blessing today.